Hey, good evening, everyone. John Henry Soto here along with George Batista. Welcome to Counterparts. Holy cow. George and I have been saying holy cow for about a week and a half now. Uh, Steve Smith is on the show tonight. Legendary drummer, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, Vital Information, Journey. I mean, we are going to have an amazing conversation. Please hang out while we listen to a little tune. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate it. Um, as I said, uh, Steve Smith is on the show tonight. We're very excited. I don't want to, you know how I go, George. You know, I start yes. talking and I won't shut up. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. Let's uh, give some love to one of our sponsors and then let's just get the show on the road. Absolutely. Well, the Counterpart Show is brought to you by Wellness Resources, a family owned and operated nutritional supplement company providing the highest quality clinically formulated supplements since 1985. Find out why wellness resources supplements are the top choice of health conscious individuals around the world. Make sure you go to myvitaminresource.com. And if you enter the promo code counterparts, you will get free shipping on all orders. Check it out. All right. So John, I'm very, very excited today. <laughs> uh, we have Mr. Steve Smith on the show. And just a little bit about Steve. I can go on and on about him, but just a little bit about him. He's an American drummer, well-known for being a member of the rock band Journey across three tenures. As a session musician, he has worked with notable artists such as Mariah Carey, Andrea Bocelli, Savage Garden, Jean-Luc Ponty, and Brian Adams, just to name a few. Steve has also had tremendous success leading his own jazz fusion group called Vital Information. He's recorded many albums with them. Uh, Modern Drummer uh, magazine readers have voted him the number one all-around drummer five years in a row. In 2001, the publication named Smith one of the top 25 drummers of all time. And in 2002, he was voted into the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame. On top of that... In 2017, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Journey. And John, this is absolutely exciting for us to be, and it's an honor to have him on. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Steve Smith. Ooh. All right. All right. Hey, John. Good to be hey. here. This is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to spend with us. Um, as we were saying, you know, George and I are like kids in a candy store when we're having these conversations with uh, um, just incredibly talented uh, people, but also giving of their art. You know, that's really, really important for us to to know that there are artists out there at that caliber that are willing to to give so much of themselves, of their talent and of their time. So we really appreciate it. Gracias. Yes. My pleasure. All right. Yeah. So thank you. Thank yeah, you, thank you. Talk about Let's well, talk. we want to talk about a lot of things, but because we don't want to keep you here for like <laughs> ten hours, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna pick some of the cream of the crop. Uh, I'm gonna actually turn it over to George, and uh, George will get the the ball rolling with some uh, questions, and then we'll get started. Absolutely. So, just uh, I I I've learned a lot about you in the past few years. I know you started playing very early on. I think it was around the age of nine, actually, where you, you started. You picked up the sticks, and you've been playing ever since. 
Um, and I know that, um, you know, just like for me, when I when I was younger, people like Neil Peart and John Bonham, those guys were my heavy influences. And when I saw these guys and heard these guys play, I was like, I couldn't believe that human beings can actually play that way and completely changed my life. And I know for you, you know, I know you you grew up on big band, but then you also saw people like Billy Cobham and Tony Williams play and completely change your life. What did they do for you as far as just inspiration? Well, to, to jump back to, to when I did start at nine years old, um, I started with formal lessons, like mm. week private lessons. And, um, and they were based on just learning the drum rudiments, learning how to read music, and actually just starting out on a practice pad. And I, and I bring that up because a lot of times people start drumming and they get a whole drum set and start playing the whole drum set. Interesting. And, and the way that I started in some ways was typical from an earlier time. So it was 1963 when I did that, when I started. And the teacher that I had was an old big band drummer. And uh, so he had me just, you know, reading, playing rudiments, learning stick control. And then... Mm -hmm. Eventually, after two years of that, I got a snare drum. So I got into you know, <laughs> snare drum set. And then when I started playing the drum set, finally three, you know, thir three years into it, I started with the ride cymbal beat, the jazz ride cymbal beat, and independence coordination. So it was in 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 today's world, I would say it was a very traditional way of learning. Traditional mm -hmm. you know, from uh, an earlier time so the orientation being big band of course the, you know the king of the hill was buddy rich yeah and of course is a, a you know incredible drummer but especially uh, he was touring with this big band and growing up in the boston area luckily i got to see him a lot so okay. that so just i'm giving you the, just like an orientation so mm -hmm. i was i was yeah, really yeah. acclimated to seeing big bands to see buddy rich i Loved all the big bands and saw, you know, Stan Kenton. Right. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, um, Peter Erskine was playing drums with Stan Kenton, and he was 18 and I was 18. Wow. <laughs> so he nice. kind of blew my mind when I first saw him that, you know, this young guy my age was doing that, was playing on tour with a big band. And then I, you know, Woody Herman and Maynard Ferguson's band. And so, so that was, you know, my orientation. I did go to the Berkeley College of Music in 1972 after I graduated high school. And, and that was the beginning of the jazz rock period. Right. So, so you had um, musicians that were really the forefront of jazz. They were jazz musicians. Mm. But they were playing with a rock kind of sound and attitude. Mm -hmm. that was just starting to happen at that time. So... It was like that was like very influential for me because it was like a the sound of the generation that I grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, and and I did you know I I told you that I saw Billy Cobham in 1974. So I had heard Billy Cobham with the Mahavishnu Orchestra on mm. on recordings. Right. And they made their recordings from like 71 to 73, and then Billy Cobham left the band and started his own group, mm -hmm. which I saw in 1974. So that was kind of a mind blowing game changer to see him 
mm. at that time. And I, and I saw him in a, in a little club in Boston that was called Paul's Mall and probably seated about 200 people. And so if you can, you know, think about like when I saw Buddy Rich and most of the big band drummers, you know, their setup was like a single bass drum and a rack tom, two floor toms and right. you know, ride cymbal and a couple of crashes. So, but you walk in and you saw Billy Cobham and he actually pretty much had a drum set like this. You know, oh, okay. bass drums, three rack toms, three floor toms, cymbals, <laughs> Like all over the place, like people used to say, it looked like the you know the front win window of Manny's music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the way he played it was also unprecedented. So for for me, like he was the first drummer that I ever saw that was a match grip. Also, mm -hmm. so yeah. I'd seen match grip before, but like everyone played traditional. Traditional, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was unusual for me to see Match Grip, and really it was just like seeing a lot of the 60s rock drummers on Ed Sullivan's show. That they had. <laughs> was like, Whoa, what's that? You know, that it looked weird to me. It didn't look right, you know. And but Billy Cobham played Match Grip, yeah. and he was a, an incredible virtuoso, and he played open handed, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and meaning he didn't play crossover. Here in this, you know, he just played the hi hat. Where, where is it? With the left hand. Right, right, exactly. And and then he he had his China symbol upside down. <laughs> bizarre to me, you know, because on purpose. Yeah, and, and, it, and it all worked into you know, and his chops were just absolutely unbelievable. Wow. So, so there there was a you know that was pretty mind blowing, and then about a year later in the little club next door. Uh, which is called the Jazz Workshop. I saw Tony Williams play with his group called the New Tony Williams Lifetime with Alan Holdsworth, Alan Pastor, Tony Newton. And it was a similar kind of mind-blowing experience because these drummers were, they were playing jazz, but they were playing it with this rock yeah. sound yeah. and attitude. So that had a big impact on me. So I think you know, then there was Lenny White, of course, yeah, sure. that, that and Alphonse Buzon with Larry Coriel's group, and then I saw Mike Clark with the Headhunters, and nice, and Dave Garibaldi with Tower of Powers. You know, so there was like I had grown up with the jazz guys that were playing very straight ahead, but these guys were taking that ability and then mixing it up with the more rock and right. B funk little bit of like latin you know yeah uh, yeah you know so fusion it's it is just yeah. everything like yeah. all kinds of the styles of u.s music put into one so in a way that's that became more my concept you know and mm -hmm. then it's, i think i do a, like i can do a lot of different things but in a way that was the main thing that i got into at that that time Okay. So you mentioned earlier, you said the sound of a generation, which I love those yeah. words because it's, it's such an important thing to understand that this was not existing at a certain point, you know, not that long early, you know, from that earlier than that. And then suddenly these artists were coming together and infusing their, whatever they brought into this. And that was the sound of the generation. And we look at the music today and where it's moving and, 
you know, do, do you, since that point, have you found another moment in time where you thought this is kind of happening again, like another sound of, uh, of a generation kind of taking another metamorphosis of some type? No, you know, not as profound as what happened at that time. Right. You know, there was, and, and I'm in the, the time I mean is like, say the mid sixties, you know, right. in, into the mid seventies kind of this. Yeah. Right. It's about a 15 year window of like yeah. where and I think, I think, you know, because you had young musicians playing jazz, but there, but they could appreciate the Beatles and the Rolling Stones right. and mm -hmm. boys. And then Jimi Hendrix and cream and Led Zeppelin, they could, they could appreciate all that music as well as, you know, as much as they could appreciate uh, earlier Miles Davis and John Coltrane, because even Miles Davis himself, when, right. when you know, started following a direction like that, and then pretty much everyone that played with Miles Davis started their own band on this cutting edge of jazz rock fusion so so in, in my mind in those years i wasn't seeing it as a separate music from jazz i was just seeing it as the modern way to play jazz right oh, interesting yeah, okay. Makes yeah. Sense. It, 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 the cutting edge of jazz wow. and, and, you know and it'd be it's in the in you know in the present day it's like people see it a little different they you know they see it as a branch on mm -hmm. the tree yeah and then there were some people that stayed more like in the in the center of what jazz was earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, so, right. so there's lots lots of variations and lots of different concepts out there. I, yeah. I think lately, and I say lately, maybe in the last fifteen or twenty years, I've been involved in, and I see a lot of uh, Indian influence coming into jazz. Oh. You know, that that's something like Indian rhythms and then uh, some musicians that are even like bringing some of the ragas. And of course, mm -hmm. Mahavishnu had that. Yeah. And and, right. and then Shakti had that. Mm -hmm. uh, and those were bands, the John McLaughlin bands from the, the early and mid 70s. But it's coming a little bit more uh, prominent now. Mm. It's not like a huge thing, but it is definitely... Right bringing some new information into the jazz world uh, melodically and rhythmically. Yeah. I want to ask you about uh, Buddy Rich because yeah. I I see, you know, you're both drummers, so you, you're seeing something that I'm not seeing. I'm, I mean, I'm seeing amazing rhythms. I'm seeing speed. I'm seeing, you know, the, the playfulness of the whole, the whole thing. Um, would, would you say he was the best? I would say, in a, you know, yes. I don't think there's really any doubt about it. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he had a, he had a, a virtuosic ability that I don't think has been matched. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it, and it's not like it was a, it was. Gone. He didn't go about it with. Right. As I can tell, with lots of study and in practice, it was pretty much a natural gift. Yeah. yeah. And he was he grew up at a time in an environment that he could hear some of the greatest drummers at that time. And somehow he was able to in, intuit how to how to do that. And physically he could do it. And, I, you know, I know I've heard you guys 
on your last show, you were talking about Neil Peart and yeah, yeah. Gruber. You know, now mm -hmm. Freddie Gruber was was a very close friend of Buddy Rich's, and Freddie Gruber had incredibly great powers of insight. Like he could watch somebody play, and he'd know so much about their technique and their background. Like he 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 was like a, a coach that could watch a player and and think, okay, he's got this and this and this. But he could use, right. he could right. use yeah. direction. But he told me that he thought like Buddy was like a an extremely gifted athlete. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Lied to the drums, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. His his abilities to the drums and almost will himself to play certain things. Amazing. It is. It's all. It's never ceases to blow my mind when I watch some of that. Yeah. But, but it's. But it's also. I have to say, it's not just his. What made him a really a great musician and drummer overall is not just the speed and the chops and the soloing, but he really was a great accompanist. Mm -hmm. He knew how to play with other musicians. He knew how to support them, and and when you saw his band he featured the guys in his band a lot mm -hmm. featured the arrangers that were writing the charts for him so it you know and then he would feature himself would usually at the end of each set like a big extended solo right, right. but you know he was a great musician and if you really dig into his catalog you'll find that he's on some great records that you would never know it was him like um there's an album with Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. That's a really great record. Just the two of them together. And it's Ray Brown on bass and Oscar Peterson on piano and Buddy Rich on drums. Wow. Just playing, you know, like brushes. And wow. there's, there, there's a couple records like that, you know, where he just was hired for the session and came in and did his part. And right. you never know it was Buddy Rich. Wow. Unbelievable. That's yeah, really absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that about him was that he was just an all-around entertainer, right? Because he yeah. also could sing, he could dance, he could he could pretty much do it all, funny. you know. And he was funny. Yeah, he was a funny. Obviously, you know, being on Carson and you know all these different places. And one of the things about you that I that I really admire as well, because I think that gets a little lost sometimes with drummers, is that you entertain when you play. And I like the fact that you, you know, you, sometimes you twirl the sticks and you hit the sticks together and you you have this entertainment part of it also that makes it very, yeah. very interesting. Talk, I mean, was that just something that you just decided I'm going to be entertaining as well? Is just, you know, how did that come about? <laughs> That's a good question. I I think it that developed naturally mm. knowing that I, for one, that I had my own band. And, and it's hard being a drummer and being a band leader. You know, it's not, it's not the most natural instrument to be a band, you know, right. to play the drums and be a band leader, but it's, it's, it's been done, you know, like yeah. Buddy Rich, like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers right. and um, Jack DeJanette has had bands. Lots of drummers have had bands and, and I, 
and I saw them. And the the ones that appealed to me the most were the ones that were also entertaining, mm-hmm. like Max Roach. Like right. you know, yes. I would I would see Max Roach play with his band, and it was entertaining. But actually, I saw Max Roach a few times play solo drum set concerts. Wow. He would play like for an hour just by himself. Oh and, wow. And that was entertaining because yeah. he yeah. did things like he played Mr. Hi-Hat. Now, if you saw me, maybe I did that. <laughs> you know, he did take a hi-hat down yeah. to the, front of the stage, and, and, and that's I saw Max Roach do that, so I wanted to learn how to do that. He'd take a snare drum to the front of the stage and just play snare drum. Wow. Or, and, and so that's kind of entertaining, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's absolutely. The hold of, you know, always behind the kit. And it's one of the reasons why I set my drum set up sideways in the front mm-hmm. stage so so people could see what I was doing yeah um, versus just with the bass drum facing the audience where that way that's a typical setup but you, but you, the audience can't always see what you're doing right you right. know you got videos and stuff like that but yeah. but in the case of where mostly where I play is is clubs mm-hmm. you know, small right. clubs so mm-hmm. uh, the best way for the audience to see it is in, with that side with some set so it's just and i want to have i'm having fun and i want to share that fun it definitely looks it absolutely yeah. So. yeah i have uh about a lot of pictures of george like this yeah because the drummer's always you know i'm always obviously behind on the back with things like, covering sorry george that. here's the only picture i have of you <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, let's talk a little bit about the journey um you know not so much the drumming, but that that decision, that choice that you say, I'm going to do this. This is what I want to do. That moment where you decided, I don't want to do anything else but this. Do you remember, did you make a choice like that or was this a, a gradual thing? That was a gradual thing that the more I played drums and the more I got into it, it, it became my identity. Yeah. In a way, I just saw myself as as a drummer. I saw myself as a musician, and I never considered doing anything else. So in that way, I, I mean, I feel pretty fortunate that I had that because by the time I was in high school and then I knew, okay, I'm gonna take my college prep course, you know, right. just because I knew, knew I wanted to go to college, but I knew I wanted to go to music college. Right. And um, so I never considered not doing it. Right. So you so, never thought yeah. of becoming yeah. an accountant or anything like that. Which <laughs> <laughs> your- history, you know, so if oh, okay. I, anything was okay, maybe a history teacher or something, but you know, I just incorporated music history. Right. <laughs> there you, yeah. That makes sense. There you go. Exactly. exactly. But, uh, did you have a supportive family? I did. Okay. Good. Good. So, so I grew up, like I said, and well, near the it's the town's called Whitman, and it's mm-hmm. near Brockton. That's the nearest big town, and it's 25 miles south of Boston. Mm-hmm. Actually, about eight miles from the Zildjian factory. Oh wow! Wow, <laughs> pretty close to, to, to that area. My my parents, my mom and dad were extremely supportive. Um, my mom had a passion. For for drumming, and I do think that you know there was some Gene Krupa records in the house, oh, and nice. you know, so I heard that, and um, and then my dad 
found my drum teacher because he he uh, he had a little drum shop right near where my dad worked in Brockton at the mm-hmm. at the newspaper, the Brockton Enterprise, and so they were they were super supportive. Wow, that's great because I mean drum drums are generally not the ones that get the most support that's yeah. true I, I did, well yeah I, like i said i did start with the practice pad but when right when i finally did get the drum set then then i was in the basement for a while but that that kind of you know rattles the whole house and and right. my dad had a like a tool shed in the back so um, that's where the drum that's where i ended up but <laughs> so that was that was fine, you know. That yeah. was a good way to do it, you know. Just yeah. go up to the to the shed in the back and put in some practice time. Wow! Now you said you had started with the pra- the practice pad. Is it? I, that sounds like it, it. almost sounds rational to to start that way because today you're like George, for instance. We we just bought a. He just went out and bought a big drum set, and you know he figured it out. But it seems like the the rudiments and all the fundamentals are really within here first, and then you can build out. Do you recommend people, anyone that's starting out, um, that to start that way? I th- I personally, from my own experience, feel like it's a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the reason is is if you get a whole drum set to start with, you'll you'll start off by playing beats. Right. Now it's different for everyone, you know, right. and that might really uh, work for some people. Right. But but if you start off by playing beats, then your your right hand is just going to go like you know play the hi hat or the simple and just play eighth notes, let's say. Right. And then right. the back beat is with the left hand. Your left hand is just going to play like two and four, right. you know. So, right. so you unless you decide, okay, I'm going to really work on my hand technique. You never really get around to it. That's yeah. true. That's very true. And so, you know, with my orientation, it was let's work on the hand technique at first and get that going. And then we're going to add these other instruments, you know, and make up a whole drum set. I think it'd be really hard to get young folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it's tough yeah. also. George did it, though. I did it, but it, it's, you know, because I, I kind of fell into the trap, and a lot of drummers, I'm sure, fall into the trap where you see your favorite drummer uh, just wailing on their kit. So the first your first thing is grab, get the kit, and just follow them, right? Yeah. And then you, and, and what, I, what happened to me is I ended up so chops-oriented you know, and Phil oriented in the beginning because I wanted to be Neil Peart. I wanted to be John Bonham and, and those guys. And, and I had to kind of go backwards and say, okay, well, you know what? You need to learn how to play some good time first before you go crazy doing this. So I had to kind of reverse engineer it type thing and then learn the rudiments and all that. So I kind of did it backwards, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but you, you, yeah, a lot of drummers I know that fall into that because they want to be that person. right? Yeah. Well, you, you gotta catch yourself. You want well. You want to have the ability to play the ideas that come to you, right? And and, and have a lot of headroom with your mm-hmm. ideas. In other words, you don't you don't want to be at your top speed, let's say, right? And and just and and just be able to play like kind of basic stuff, right? You want the basic stuff to be there, but to, for it to be super easy, mm-hmm. right? So you yes. can, you know, it's like having a car <laughs> with an <laughs> engine 
Right. <laughs> we right. still have to drive 65, or, you know. Right. Exactly. So a lot of headroom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we can do a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. And, and it'll be easy. Yeah. You know, so, and, it, so, and if it's easy, you can make it feel good. Right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. But if you're, if you're on the edge of your, your technique, it's probably you're going to struggle with the feel. Yes. And the Absolutely. And, and the rest of it. So it's a good reason is to have good chops is so you can relax and, and then allow the creative you, to happen. Right. Use the tools because you already have them. You don't have to worry. It's like, right. it's like learning how to speak really, you know, you learn the words, learn the alphabet, learn, and then you could have a conversation. Then you can write a book. You know, right, exactly. Have a, a, a large vocabulary. Right. That's it, that's it. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to, first of all, I want to thank you because you were kind enough to send George and I these amazing CDs. This is a, this is a, a New York City edition. I'm going to get to the, and this is a, the best of. Yes. Right there, signed. <laughs> um, and this comes out in two days. That's right. And I want you to tell us a little bit about this because this is a the complete Columbia recordings, and this goes back to uh, I think you said '83. Yeah. So I'm gonna. So I'm gonna, yeah, there you go. So yeah, in 1983, this album came out, which is the first Vital Information album. I'll do that too. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> you know, so I had. You know, I, as I described, grew up, you know, mainly being interested in jazz and, and jazz rock. And and one thing led to another. And I ended up you know, being asked to be the drummer in Journey. You know, mm -hmm. so that was a very interesting opportunity. Um, I, I found the music interesting and 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 the whole situation was was quite interesting. And I made a lot of records with Journey, you know, with, starting with uh, Evolution, Departure, um, Captured, and Escape, and Frontiers. And, and at that point, I had been with the band long enough that Columbia allowed me to do a solo record. Nice. Okay. You know, and so the other and the other guys like Neil did a, a record with. Uh, with Jan Hammer, Steve Perry went out and did a solo record, and I wanted to do my own record, and that became Vital Information. Okay. Because I had um, some good friends that I knew from college. Here, actually, I knew uh, two of the members of the early Vital Information band from high school: uh, Tim Landers and Dave Wolcheski. We played together in our high school years, and then. Uh, I went to Berkeley and I met Mike Stern and Dean Brown, and that became that first vital information. Wow. wow. And uh, so in 83, we went into a studio in Rhode Island and recorded that first record, January 83. Then the, the most of that year, I went on tour with Journey playing the music from Frontiers, which was mm. a record that came out that year. And once that tour was over, I did a, like a two month tour with with my my band the first tour of vital information so that's coming up wow it's going to be 40 years wow. <laughs> next year and then I, I you know came back from tour 
made the album called Orion. And then in the next two years, I made Global Beat and Fia Fiaga. So those records came out at a time. The first two, they were only on vinyl and cassette. Mm -hmm. And the, the Global Beat and Fia Fiaga came out on vinyl, cassette, and CD. But in those days, you know, you did a mastering based on your vinyls and the mm -hmm. limitations of vinyl. So if right. they put that master onto a CD, that didn't necessarily sound good because it wasn't mastered for CD. Right. So, right. so I, I guess what Wounded Bird Records is putting this out, it's called The Complete Vital Information, The Complete Columbia Recordings. Official re release date is July 1st. And, and when Wounded Bird asked me if I would want to do this, of course, they have to license the music from Sony Music, which mm -hmm. now owns that Columbia catalog. I, I went through my storage unit and I found original quarter inch masters of, the, of each record. <laughs> but but the, the, the good part is they were not mastered. They were just the songs. Wow. Of the songs, but not mastered. So I have them. Each one of these albums is newly mastered. Wow. Uh, by a great uh, engineer, Jim Brick, uh, who from Absolute Audio in New Jersey did an outstanding job mastering these four albums for a CD only. So this is a CD only release. Oh and CDs, they sound really better to me than any yeah. of the original releases, mm -hmm. in yeah. form, whether it was, you know, vinyl or cassette. So, so yeah, I'm pretty excited that, that yeah, these are coming out. They're great. So you somehow, so the, the, what you found wasn't, it wasn't mastered. It was actually the individual tracks you just had. Well, what it was is when, when you, when you finish, when you finish a recording, you put the whole, all you know, like eight songs or 10 songs, whatever it is, onto a quarter inch reel, you know, mm -hmm. and send that to the mastering guy. And he, but what I had, what I still had was what they called safety copies. Oh, okay. so you make a duplicate of that. And I just kept it. And I, I was like, what am I ever going to do with this? <laughs> this? Yeah. <laughs> 40 years later. <laughs> I found a use for it. Yeah, finally. <laughs> and so, but those tapes were so old, you had to like go through a process, like you know. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Take them, and then they put them onto digital, and then they work in the digital realm. But yeah, right. that's so great. Well, yeah, I, I this actually arrived today. I went to the mailbox, I plugged the envelope. I was like, "Yay!" So I'm going to be uh, playing this a lot. So thank you so much for that. Um, so are you um, going to be, I mean, obviously you're, you're going to be touring at some point. Do you have something set up with to, to promote this uh, new release? Um, I'm not touring at this point to promote that, but, you know, I'm just, I'm talking about it in interviews. I do, I, I will be playing a few gigs in September with a new lineup of Vital Information. Okay. We'll be playing in, in Rhode Island and and then three nights at Birdland in New York City. So oh, nice. those dates are listed uh, on my vitalinformation.com website. And, but I'm, my agent is, is currently booking two tours for vital information for 2023 uh, a west coast tour in march and an east coast tour in june 
So we're talking about basically like a year from now. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, but with COVID and yeah. getting canceled and musicians getting yeah. sick, I've been keeping a pretty low profile. Yeah, yeah. But I, I really like though what you what you did during COVID when you started from the practice room. Right. <laughs> that was fantastic because yeah. you really, I mean, you you took advantage of the of the platform and say, listen, you know, we can't you you guys can't tour. A lot of musicians weren't working, obviously, but at least you were still providing value and information to the drummers out there and saying, you know, hey, we could watch you and we can learn stuff and we can practice at home and watching you and stuff. So it was fantastic. Yeah, that was something I felt I needed to do just to keep myself busy and creative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it it was rewarding because I do practice every day or most mm -hmm. every day, almost every day. And I'm always working on new ideas. And I just thought, well, let's document some of this and put it out there and, and just keep some energy going, you know, creative energy going for myself. And then, yeah, people responded and they, they enjoyed those videos. Definitely. That's Definitely. great. So I wanted to ask you about the experience with journey because it is a, a massive, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what it must be like to be, you have to get into a van and you got to escape. <laughs> escape the, the stadium i mean i mean that whole thing i've seen footage i've seen you know the, the some uh, um video footage and stuff and it it's what is what is that because you're you're really in a in a great position because you're able to you, you do vital information you have this amazing work it's your work it's your passion it's your, and then you have this other monster that kind of like that you were that you were part of that kind of had this uh, right. this life, you know. What was that balance like for you? I mean, it, it must have been a tremendous. Well, if you're talking about going all the way back to like 78, 1978 to eighty five, you know, when I when I was in Journey and we were in the process of writing music, recording albums putting them out and then going on tour and and just like it was a yearly cycle that oh, would wow. so we would spend about three months um at home and but working five days a week we would we um so we lived the band was based in the san francisco bay area so i moved you know i, I had to move there so i moved to um at first i moved to mill valley and we would rehearse in Oakland, California. So that it was like 20 minute, you know, half hour. Yeah. It was more than like tons of traffic. It was, <laughs> no, it was not that bad of a commute, but we would go to a rehearsal hall and just jam and come up with songs by, uh, you know, someone would bring in a riff or a chord progression or, I would play a groove or there'd be a bass line and then and and we would write music organically like that steve perry would find melodies over over the grooves and the riffs and chord progressions and so the the music developed quite organically with the five people in the room and so our goal was to write an album mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't i mean yes we wanted 
songs that were popular and have them on the radio, but it's not, I don't ever feel like we were a band that was trying to write hit songs per se. We were trying to write a nice, a good album. Right. Right. You know, and, and so we want, and we need, knew we needed songs that would go on, on the radio, but we were trying to tell a story also, mm -hmm. you know, 10 songs that worked together and made sense. And, and we would rehearse a lot. And by the time we got to the studio, we were prepared so we could make an album in a fairly short time. Wow. You know, we like a month or or more, like maybe a little, maybe, I don't, I don't remember exactly how long each record took, but they, they weren't like stretched out over a year or right. the things you hear about that came later. Because yeah. no. <laughs> then we had a tour, you know, like our manager, mm -hmm. Herbert, just like he had already had his book. So we had deadlines, you know, so we, it was very businesslike. Yeah. In that way, it's like we were creative, but we were focused, you know. So we we rehearsed five days a week, learned the music, went in the studio, made the record, and then yeah, go on tour. And 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 things started slow. I and mean, when I first started in the band, the the venue size was like it was theaters, 2500 seat theaters. Uh -huh. And then Eventually, we moved into um, small arenas. So, like arenas being like being like ten, fifteen thousand, up to twenty thousand. And eventually, after Escape, the the album Escape, that was the one that really took off. We were playing stadiums. You know, that's like we're talking 40, 60,000 people. So it happened slowly. So somehow, I acclimated to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, is, it is bizarre in a way. It's kind yeah. of stressful, and you know, to step out on stage in front of all those people. Um, wow. But you know, but it was it was like this gradual thing that happened. Yet at the same time, I I feel like I stayed quite grounded because I was still working with jazz my right. that were jazz musicians yeah. that I yeah. grew up with and. Even on if I had a you know a little break from Journey, sometimes I'd go to Boston and we'd play a few gigs. Yeah, just yeah. in a little club, and and that. So you know the my musical focus was was wide, mm -hmm. right. you know, like in, and and I was deeply into being in Journey and having that work, but I was also playing with like I said with my friends from. Um, from Boston, but I also then met a, a bunch of great jazz musicians in the Bay Area. Mm. And so, and you, John, you mentioned you know you you really loved Santana. Well, Tom Coster was like yeah. Santana and in Journey, you know, they they are related because yeah. the original um, singer organist Greg Raleigh from the, the first incarnation of Santana left uh, Santana and co-founded Journey with Neil Sean and who was also playing in Santana in 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 those early in the early seven that was like Woodstock years right yeah actually yeah, right Neil came a little after Woodstock right after that yeah yeah but in the early 70s and they they started Journey and the keyboard player that took Greg Raleigh's place was Tom Coster Wow. <laughs> so, so Tom is a great jazz musician. 
And so he was in Santana for, then for many years as a co-composer and producer. And then I met him and, and I ended up playing in his band. Wow, so okay. everything that I was doing in the Bay Area. And then he's ended up in Vital Information. So you'll hear he's on the Global Beat record and the Pia Fiaga record. That's and, amazing. You know, so, so I was keeping myself busy wow. doing a lot of different things and and taking taking it all seriously. Right. You know, really putting in a lot of time to make sure I did a good job in, in every situation. So... Yeah. So wow. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, no, no you did absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I wanted to ask you. So obviously, the accomplishments with Journey as well. Uh, talk a little bit about how it felt when you uh, entered the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, <laughs> that's an, that. That was an interesting experience. I I didn't expect much of anything from it mm -hmm. because it was not anything on my mind to ever be in the rock and roll hall of fame or, you know, I never considered it a thing, <laughs> to, right. but, but I knew about it and I had seen some of the shows and I didn't know what to make of it really. Um, but when we got um, voted to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame, of course, then, you know, became a big, a big deal for us to get ready right. You know, so, so we're, you know, we put together what we were going to play a few songs and had to, you know, get a speech together. But I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. But uh, interestingly, my wife, Diane and I, we we showed up at and it was in uh, Barclay. Is it Barclay Stadium? Oh, Barclay Center? Yeah, it was yeah, in, in Brooklyn. Yeah. And so we showed up and it was, you know, it was a pretty big to do. And, <laughs> and, and then the show started. Now, once the show started, it was actually one of the best shows I'd ever seen. Wow. It was, it was so like, uh, the sound was great. And so we were starting to get caught up in it. It was really so it was like electric light orchestra played. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. And then, um, Alex Leibson and Getty Lee in in and they inducted yes right okay yeah that's right Getty Lee played bass right. and it was it was it was great and actually backstage I had a nice long conversation with Bill Bruford oh okay he he was there he was like what are you doing here <laughs> <laughs> well, you know from Bill he goes oh yeah I forgot you played with Jeremy <laughs> he was there getting inducted with, with so. Oh, in the in yeah. the end, it was pretty exciting, and yeah. then and then to be you know to play for everyone, and to be inducted, right? It did feel like you know it was a pretty exciting thing, and so that's so funny that you. Cool. I I feel I felt yeah. really good about it, you know, as it as it was happening. So right, and oh, we saw Joan Baez, and she was oh. amazing. You know, Tupac got. Uh, and you know, was that was his night? So the, it was. There was a lot of great music. Wow. It was a. It was a good experience to be there. It's so funny that you kind of thought it was going to be like a nice banquet. It's like yeah. a, <laughs> a little dinner, <laughs> a few speeches, and then you get a little ribbon. Right. 
and then you walk out. <laughs> I did get a beautiful truck. Yeah, you got a nice. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. I think I have. Wow. A, oh, it was cool. Yeah, it was exciting. I have a picture of you there holding it. <laughs> oh yeah, there he is. Yep, exactly. <laughs> love wow. it, love it. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we're it's our, it's forty seven minutes. We are, we've been going. Wow. I feel like we've got so much. Um, our audience, like like I said before, we usually um, try to bring guests that would inspire and let people know that there's no matter what's happening right now. You know, the last two years have been challenging for everybody, especially okay. artists that haven't. You know, bread and butter is when you go out to perform, and um, so there are artists out there now that I know some that are still kind of a little bit hesitant to get out there or even do something like this. Do you have any, you know, advice or something that you would, um, I know it's kind of a <laughs> big question, but yeah. any kind of, uh, um, you know, just thoughts that you would actually like to communicate to anyone out there that's kind of feeling a little bit of pressure wanting to get out there again? Well, I'm one of those <laughs> people that have not really. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, we are too. <laughs> yeah, I miss playing with other musicians mm -hmm. a lot and um when i when i first was experiencing staying off the, you know not being on tour in some ways there was a certain relief to it because huh. mm -hmm. if i look back at my schedule it yeah. was pretty crazy yeah you know, i was working all the time with very little time at home so um, so I found in some ways a relief to be at home, though I was still going on a lot of the energy that had been built mm -hmm. from years mm -hmm. before. So when I started like from the practice room, you know, I had a lot of ideas and a lot of energy. But as time went on, that energy dissipates. Right. You know, and now I, you know, I'm having trouble myself, <laughs> you know, staying really motivated. Sure. Uh, but but I push myself uh, to practice most days because I do know eventually I'm going to be out there playing again. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and so so the the practicing, you know, I like sometimes people, you know, they ask me like about practice. I, I practice even when I don't feel like it. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. Like what, you know, why, you know, why do I do that? It's, it's because I, when I'm on tour, I don't necessarily feel like playing every night either. <laughs> right. I mean, realistically, yeah, sure, I, yeah, sure. you know, for six sure. months or even for a month, you know, you don't always want to play every single night. Right. But you need the chops to do that. And right. the chops come from, for me, the, the fact that I practice pretty much every day. So, yeah. so then you can access your best, your, your best abilities, even when you don't feel like it, because the chop of putting in that daily practice is there. Right. So I do encourage people to practice every day or close like i do six days a week i i try to take sunday off Some, mm -hmm. sometimes i'll take another day off but but i'll put in you know an hour two three you know not usually more than that and it's but i feel like it's important to keep my chops up which that's hard to do 
yeah. without a, without a lot of live playing. Um, but I do work on that, and 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 I I give myself assignments. You know, like if what if I have a good idea, I feel like it's a good idea, I'll I'll write it out, and then give myself. Yeah. Uh, variations of the idea and then, you know, and, and work on it in a pretty organized way. Because like I said, going back to when I first started taking those weekly lessons, what, one of the things I learned from the weekly lessons is, you know, I want, I have six days <laughs> to work right. on this. Right. And, then, and then I have a, you know, like a, my next lesson. And I don't want to disappoint my teacher. Right. Uh, exactly. So, exactly. So there's this, uh, you, you the chops of you you get an assignment you have the deadline and you work on it and then right here you go it was now that that happens in in your professional life sure you know you're going to have to learn these tunes then we're going to have a recording session or you're going to learn these tunes and then we're going to go out on tour and play them so that system right. that that you know is is in place and it's good to keep it in place yeah and so somehow you know like if you saw from the practice room like some weeks i was working on the charlie wilcox and some weeks i was working on the new steve gad book gadamans you know so even if i didn't it wasn't my idea i just open up an old drum book that i had there you go and work so that it's that keeps me interested yeah you know but it but it is hard so i am looking forward yeah playing some gigs so having you know having at least a few gigs or jam sessions or whatever yeah you know hopefully you know that's that is something that can give you that fuel that you need that inspiration yeah absolutely and i it's it's very inspirational also when you see you know guys at your level who are still practicing the all those hours right because you know when when we were younger I, I know when i was younger i was practicing six eight hours a day you know yeah. and john and i have talked about this on the show the the mindset when it comes to wanting to be good at something whatever it is whether it's drums yeah. guitar or whatever it is right having to miss you may have to miss certain things you may not be hanging out with the guys you may be you know and i had to miss a lot of stuff to sit you know and john and i had to yeah. you know work on stuff because we really wanted to get good yeah. and then you know and then when you you get to a certain level i mean you know there's 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 guys at your level that they don't practice at all they just rely on the gigs and the gig is their practice you know but it's refreshing to see you know guys like you who are again at your level that still really want to make sure that you're you're developing and getting better and keeping your chops up and that type of thing it's very refreshing yeah all right good yeah it- I mean, it's it comes natural for me to want to practice. I enjoy the process, but I also find that I you don't really get to the interesting stuff until you get past a certain physical point. Yes, and and then a more you know dendrites are firing and, and ideas right. are happening, right. and. and there's, I guess that there's also a, a good reason to, to practice a lot because if once you practice every day, your chops start to go up. But the right. day you don't practice, actually, 
they kind of atrophy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So let's say you go a few days without practicing and then you practice for a day. I'm only going to get back a little bit to where Just I left. Where you were. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So then, you know, yeah. that's why maintenance is important. And yeah. then, then to go beyond is is also like always, always moving forward. That That's how it is for me. Yeah, other people, other drummers are different, you know, they may not need that, but I do. And I enjoy it, too. And as one of the the greatest drummers, um, I think it's also going back to talking to people that are out there. I think it's also important that artists understand the importance that they have on the planet. And especially right now with the, the way the world is, I mean, artists are needed more now than ever. So, you know, sometimes I know it's hard getting out there and trying to, but, you know, it's needed. We need to destimulate this aggression that's happening across the planet. And the only way we can really do that is through art is, you know, the, the art, the artists that are out there. So we are super excited that you are going to get back out there. And are you going to come through Nashville? Is that anything in the cards? Please. You know, that's a good question. Usually <laughs> the jazz tours don't go through Nashville. I know. <laughs> Can play here at my house. I'll have. A, I'll, I'll make an amazing meal. I have ribs. I do know there's some jazz clubs. I mean, Victor Wooten lives in Nashville. He told me. He told me there's some places where he plays down there. Yes. So hook me up. There are, there are some places. I'll, I'll find some places. I'll send them over to you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great, uh, Steve. We want to thank you so much for being on. I mean, to, we're at, a, at an hour, and uh, we really appreciate your time, your your wisdom, your insight into the into into music and into the into things that really a lot of us don't have that insight. So having you here has been really a pleasure, and we really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. I'm, I'm glad you guys have this show. It's it's a great show. Thank you. Thank you. Very, Thank you. Uh, very far reaching. Like a, I like all the different subjects and different guests that you get into. Really, Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And this, <laughs> yes, this is, is what we want to talk about. Um, so Steve, hang out right there for a second. We're going to be right back, but thank you so much for being on and we appreciate it. And we'll definitely be seeing again soon, hopefully in Nashville. <laughs> but in New York, definitely. Yes, definitely. I will see definitely you. In yes. New York. Definitely in New York. All right. Hold on. Woo! Wow. Everybody right. check out Steve and Vital Information. Yeah. You will not be disappointed. What an amazing band. Yeah, the website's on the screen there. Absolutely. Please check it out. This comes out, actually. Uh, we're special, so we have it already, just so you know. I'm sorry, folks. <laughs> but... This comes out in two days. We got it two days early. Um, I'm very excited to, to listen to this. So get out there and get your copy. I uh, want to thank everybody for tuning in. Appreciate you all very much. We will see you all again next time. George, thank you very much as always. And uh, for everybody here at Counterparts, me and George, um, want to thank you and see you all next week. And as always, <laughs>